Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, CEO, founding and managing member at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about tax, trusts, and estates, issues for the business owner, closely held business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law firm management and leadership, and well-being. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Rachel Trulson. Rachel is one of my co-members at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. Rachel and I share a variety of passions, particularly in relation to helping families address estate tax issues, income tax issues, incapacity planning, and connecting the dots between the various aspects of the legal issues related to planning and when the plans actually come into play. On today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the legal issues to be considered related to aging. On a later episode, we are going to discuss our life care planning group and how we are building that to help connect the dots between legal issues and the living reality of how the tools work when an issue arises. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we talk about legal issues for the aging today, One of the things we are intentionally avoiding is using the term elder law. And we've talked about that. Is there a better term than elder law? Because a lot of times when people hear the term elder law, they think that means poverty law for old people that have no money. 
But the fact is that we have a good segment of the population that's aging, and there are a whole host of legal issues that arise for clients, whether they have hundreds of millions of dollars or whether they have $100,000. And so the word elder law is poverty law is really not quite appropriate. So what are your thoughts on that? Can we? Can you explain why we've made a conscious decision to talk about this area differently? Right, right. You know, and with our aging popu- population, um, you know, I prefer to think of it as um, issues related to aging rather than elder law itself. Because um, as we age, those it looks the same um, whether you have wealth or whether you are of a, a person of not as much means. So the issues related to aging are are the same across the board. Um, the planning may look different, but with respect to um, health care or having power of attorney documents in place or having an estate plan in place, planning for incapacity, all of those things are the same across the board, regardless of your wealth status. The planning just might look different. So the issues of vulnerability related to aging, whether you have a little bit or a whole lot, are actually fairly similar. Correct. Correct. You might just have a, and I used to say, well, you have a bigger impact if you have a lot, but actually if you have only 100,000 and somebody steals it from you, That's that might matter more than if you have 100 million and somebody steals 100,000 from you. Right, right. Well, you and I joke a lot about, you use the term asset protection, we hear the term asset protection in various methods. And we've said that's another area we should figure out how to refer to differently because there's different meanings of asset protection. As a big generality, it's helping protect your assets, whatever they might be, and for whatever purpose you're trying to protect them. But can you clarify a little further why asset protection really does apply to everyone and where it might be different? Right, right. So if you're talking about people who um, have more means, then you would be looking at asset protection um, from a standpoint of protecting assets during their lifetime. So there are certain professions, for example, that have maybe higher risk, whether it's doctors or even lawyers or um, other people that may have a risk associated with the type of work that they do. Um, And you would want to plan for asset protection around those types types of of careers. Then you have people who maybe have larger wealth that want to protect assets um, from taxes, for example. So that type of asset protection looks different. And then when we do Medicaid planning, we have um, uh, clients who have very limited resources. So with the $100,000 example that you have, that may be all that they have. Um, So if they have long-term care needs, down the road, we want to try to protect that as much as we can from a Medicaid planning standpoint. Um, and then we talked in a different episode about um, asset protection for, for beneficiaries. So if you have a beneficiary who may have a creditor concern or a, a mar- marital concern um, or likes to spend a lot of money, then you may want to put some protections in place for that beneficiary. Um, So that's how it looks a little bit different depending on the type of client that we have or the level of wealth that they have. Which I'm just going to make a point about that with the child who might have challenges in trying to protect. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of times an aging client who decides to name their child as a joint tenant Uh on an agency account or a checking Mm -hmm. account or things like that. And let's say that you do that. And there's, there's a whole bunch of technical rules about their bill of void, but technically you've made them an account owner. Correct, right. And all of a sudden they go through a divorce or they mm-hmm. get sued. 
you have created a risk of that asset thinking you're making things simple. Right, right. And we've both seen that happen. And my other had. one is when you do it like with a you know $10 million account and you name one kid as a joint owner with the idea that they're going to give it back to the other kids, uh-huh. then suddenly that child has to make taxable gifts right. to their siblings to resolve that. So that's one of my right. least favorite strategies. But so asset mm-hmm. protection, it's asset protection and financial coordination mm-hmm. has a variety of different meanings. But at the end of the day, it's trying to keep it, you know, keep as much as yourself rather than going to the IRS, which is perfectly legal. Sure there's tax fraud and there's tax planning. Tax planning is certainly appropriate. Mm-hmm. Asset protection, trying to protect from creditors. There's tax, you know, again, there's a creditor avoidance that might be illegal, but protecting your assets legitimately, totally appropriate. Absolutely. Keeping your assets from being dissipated for the government because you need some government aid at some point. Also, there's perfectly legitimate ways to do it. Right, right. Well, let's talk a little bit about one of the key things that every, not just every aging client, but everybody ought to have something in regard to, and we've been through a pandemic in recent years, it makes me really highly aware of the importance of thinking about how your affairs should be managed in the event you can't manage it. Right. Even if it's short term, whether you're 35, 50, or whether you're 80. So right. can you talk a little bit about what we refer to as the financial power of attorney? Right. And the financial power of attorney is something that everyone aged here in Nebraska, 19 and older, should have. Um, is that correct across the country for all states? Or is no, that some states by state? vary by states. So you need right. to look at the state law correct. and the state in which you're a resident in. Correct. To know correct. So I believe age. I was 18. We happen to be 19. And then I don't know that I've ever shared this with you, but um, my son, who turned 19 last year for his birthday, got power of attorney documents. So he got to come into my office and sign his power of attorney documents as part of um, becoming age of majority. That's Um, a really great point right there, mm -hmm. because it's really common and not just the financial power of attorney, but the health care power of attorney. So for anyone who's had a child turn legal age, whatever that might be in the state Mm -hmm. that you're located in, and then go off to college and have an injury and you try and get involved in decisions about the medical care, you're the parent of, say, a 19-year-old, and they won't give you information about your child's status because you don't have a power of attorney. So one of the things that we do is dock it when you have kids turning age 19 or whatever the appropriate age is in your state, and you get a little letter from us suggesting powers of attorney for the children. Right, right. So I know we're talking about in the context of having older clients, but it's important for everybody. So yeah, I just wanted a great to point. include that. Um, so in any event, having financial power of attorneys in place is, is very important um, because, again, if there's an incapacity issue, even if it's a short-term incapacity issue, it's important to have those financial power of attorneys attorney documents in place. Um, there, it's important to have them updated on a regular basis because sometimes banks won't honor them if they call, if they consider them too old, um, different, fi- uh, financial advisors, the staleness, the staleness, doctrine, yes, five years, called, right? I think, yeah, yeah, it's typically five years. Right. Um, and also the, the general durable power of attorney law was, um, modified in Nebraska several years ago so that we have to include certain powers in a financial power of attorney in order for I the just- agent. Have do a clarifying. So I think there's actually a Uniform Powers of Attorney right, Act. Right. And when that gets updated, it's really common for in every state, again, varies on whether they adopt the Uniform Act of whatever type it might be. I'm currently an observer for several Uniform Acts. Right. And so it's a really interesting process. 
But so each state has the ability to adopt its own version. So whatever state you're in, you really have to look Pay at attention. the act of that mm-hmm. state, right, mm-hmm. when you're working right. through those issues. Right, right. But you were going to mention that there's certain powers that you have to – and because I always – this is my joke about a power of attorney – is the first paragraph should be all that you have to do, which says I give my agent all the powers that they can have uh-huh. under the act. Then some court says – oh, you couldn't have possibly meant to give them this power. So if you really need to give them, really mean to give them this power, then you need to add a paragraph, right? Right. But what would be some of the important powers that people really need to think about, particularly well, as they're aging? Exactly. And and part of it stems from asset protection too. So there's a gifting power that should be in the power of attorney. So if we're going to do any type of asset... Should it always be in it? No, it shouldn't always be. But I mean, for younger people, I don't tend to put that in there. Although gifting is... I see it as a broader power too, because even to make gifting to your uh, charities for church, for example, um, I think that power should be included. If you're going to have a spouse as your primary agent, maybe there's less risk of including a gifting power in there if you were going to have what a child. What if you have a spouse with the power to gift to others than the kids by the Right, and you can limit that. You can limit that. Right, right. Could and we that's, limit that? yeah, that's right. what I wanted you to talk uh-huh. about. Was right, so we could limit, limit that. Right, absolutely. So it doesn't have to be a broad gifting power. So um, do you recommend that you just go out on the internet and find a template power of attorney and use that? No, no. And what about right. a, lot a lot of states of actually have a statutory power of attorney that people think is enough? Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it certainly could be. Right. But for most people, do you think that works or they should think through those powers? I never recommend a statutory power of attorney because I think it's too limiting and it could be risky too if you don't understand what you're doing. Um, so that's why you need to consult with an attorney who you can actually share your information, share what your needs are, um, and they can anticipate maybe what you might need going forward and include all of those in a power of attorney. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. Financial advice is useless without empathy. At Foster Group, we want to hear your story, your goals, your worries about the future. Only then can we help you feel confident about all aspects of your financial life. Come experience how it feels to be truly cared for at Foster Group. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. So when I gave the example of you have a second, third, or maybe fourth spouse and kids by various marriages, Mm -hmm. and you have certain powers that you certainly want your current spouse to take care of, there might be the ones who are there taking care of you, but there's other things you might not want that particular person to do. Can you have multiple powers of attorney giving different people different powers? I've never done that before. So then I'll answer my own question. Yeah. The answer yeah. is yes. So, I would say yes, but yeah. that would be tricky, wouldn't it? So not what you ha- do have to do is refer to the fact that you've created other powers of attorney. Okay. Otherwise, again, if you look at the standard template, it often says, I hereby revoke all other powers of attorneys right. that I've drafted. So when I do it, like I might give spouse, a surviving spouse, let's say somebody's been married six years, all the powers that they need. But then in case both get incapacitated at the same time, I might give a second power of attorney to one or more of the kids with more limited powers. In that situation of second or third spouse, kids by different relationships, I might give a 
somebody who's acting as a corporate power of attorney, mm -hmm. certain powers that we don't want to, because we don't want to set up a situation where spouse and kids from a different marriage suddenly are fighting over things. Right. So sometimes you, you can, in fact, bifurcate the powers of a power of attorney into different documents, and that's something that I do. If you were to list some of the best practices, you mentioned that mm -hmm. five-year staleness doctrine. Right. So even if there's no changes to a document, somebody mm -hmm. should print that out um, every five years and just re-sign it, right? Well, they should go into the lawyer's office just to make sure there hasn't been any changes in the law um, and get those updated on a regular Significant basis. Significant issue because there almost always is, right? Yes, right, right. Um, and then, again, just double-checking that your agent, whoever you've picked in that power of attorney, is still able to act. Um, sometime your agent will either um, not be the best person because whatever life circumstances have changed between the last time you updated the document and now, so it's good to evaluate your agents and, and their avail availability. Um, and then, of course, course, when you, if you're changing agents, you need to um, notify that prior agent that you've revoked that power so that they understand that they're no longer, um, no longer have authority under that prior document. And then provide copies of those documents to your financial institutions and, and whoever might need that so they know the document's been updated. And a lot of times we draft what are called durable powers of attorney, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which mean they, those powers exist at the time the document's signed. So let's say if I give Rachel a durable power of attorney, she has the authority now, but maybe I really don't want her to do anything with my financial accounts unless I can't. Mm -hmm. But what I've done by creating the durable is avoided having to define incapacity right. and getting letters of incapacity. So I give you all that power. So what I do sometimes is say, hey, Rachel, I made you my attorney in fact today. By the way, here's where the power of attorney is in case you ever need it. And, but I don't necessarily hand it to them. Sure, sure. And that can kind of depend on the situation, but that's one of my approaches to do it. What about this situation, Rachel, where a lot of times an investment advisor, you go to the bank or something, says, well, I know you have a power of attorney, but we want you to sign ours. Right, right. Well, and that would be with a bigger bank, um, and that would be a limited power of attorney with respect to, to banking. Um, and we run into that, like I mentioned, with some larger banks. Um, and sometimes and they're very insistent about they it. They are. They are. Um, and I don't know, and, and I don't know what the downside necessarily might be as long as it's consistent. What if there's inconsistency? Yeah, that's what okay, that's where yeah. you're going. Yeah. Unless there's inconsistencies between the two, and the client may not recognize that difference in, in looking at the document. Um, and and so that might be, you know, require an attorney to look at that to make sure we don't have any inconsistencies between the two. Um, but that's I how really I would... prefer they don't sign right, those. Right, right. Now, through the pandemic, sometimes if they had not, then we are having huge fights with institutions to get powers of right. attorney respected. But I will note that that was a really significant issue after the 2009-2010 financial issues. And that's when a lot of financial institutions started insisting on their own documents. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, the Uniform Laws Commission responded to that by incorporating that if you have a power of attorney that complies with your state law, then you are not required to sign one with a financial institution. So I do make that argument. But as you said, sometimes it's just easier mm -hmm. as long the big qualification that you made that I think is so important is as long as it's consistent. Right, right, right. I agree. Well, let's talk about another topic that you and I are both super passionate about, which mm -hmm. is elder abuse. There's nothing 
worse. It's like kicking a helpless dog to mm-hmm. see what mm-hmm. some of the things that we see. Right. Can you explain what it is, mm-hmm. what to watch for, and what you can do if you suspect it, or what can right. be done to prevent it, even more importantly? Right, right. Well, and, and there's different forms of elder abuse, and the one that I think that we're going to focus on today is the uh, financial uh, abuse or exploitation. Um, and you'll see that in, a, in an adult Either they are compromised from a mental capacity or they're just under the influence of someone who may just have a very strong personality and they're not brave enough um, to, to stand up to that person. So you can see those in those, in those two different types of situations. Um, and trying to prevent that looks different, I think, um, on maybe two different levels from the family level. If you have a loved one who may be susceptible to undue influence, I think it's a good practice to stay in regular communication with that person. So you can put your eyes on them on a regular basis and make sure that they're taking care of themselves. Um, if you see any weird mail come to the to the um, to the house, um, if you just see weird things that are out of character for them, um, you won't recognize that if you don't see them on a regular basis. Um, also, make sure that they have power of attorney documents in place like we're talking about, encourage them to do that in case they haven't done it already. And then again, um, try to encourage them to be more open about their personal finances too, because if they allow you to have information about their finances, um, especially if it's the power of a power of attorney person that they've appointed, then you can monitor those um, to the extent that they're comfortable so that you can learn what is normal with their spending and with their income. And when there's some type of um, something that happens that's not normal in in their financial situation, you'll be able to pick up on that more quickly. So families, I recommend that for families. And us too, as advisors, can be a little proactive with our clients too. Our clients, we don't always see on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes they're going to see their financial advisor. And I think you alluded to that too in a prior episode. Um, But working collaboratively with our financial advisors um, and our uh, tax preparers, working with a mutual client. Um, If a client needs money, they're not often going to go to their lawyer. They're often going to go to their financial advisor. So if they're taken advantage of by, say, a phone call that comes to their house with someone wanting to wire $10,000 somewhere where they're going to have to go to the bank or they're going to have to go to their financial advisor for that. So if the financial advisor picks up on those types of things, um, then collaboratively, um, maybe we could work together to try to minimize that type of exploitation. And one of the things that we've done is also at an internal family office mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who is not doing the same thing as the financial advisors, but we are mm-hmm. sometimes receiving copies of the statements and doing some right. auditing of what's going on and checking in on amounts of distributions and amounts being taken out as well for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. and keeping track of the overall assets so that we would be able to identify whether there's a change in assets. Because right. one of the things that I started getting more serious about that when I had a client couple sitting in my office and they were completely competent at the time as far as I'm concerned but they were wise enough to be very concerned about the situations where somebody might knock on their door and there Mm -hmm. were these kind caring people Mm -hmm. and ask them to make donations or you know they're capable of living independently they don't have dementia they're just vulnerable older kind right and I thought do we really have what we need for clients for that situation I get that, you know, if the one, if it's a big amount, hopefully financial mm-hmm. advisor or family office will pick it up. 
Is there anything mm-hmm. else? Well, and, and again, I just think keeping family members, just advising family members to try to stay connected with their loved ones as best they can. Um, and, you know, our, our parents, our, our elders can are tend to be protective of that information. So sometimes it's a very de- delicate conversation to have. So maybe that happens in more baby steps, you know, one step at a time. But other than um, being able to monitor their finances and understand what's normal for them, it would be hard to pick up on those types of things unless they made a comment. So that's why it's important to stay in contact with them. They may make a comment where they had so-and-so stop by, and, and that just leads um, opens a door to a conversation that you can ask a little bit, a few more questions to see exactly what the nature of that contact was. Well, another one of the things I like lately is there's this do-it-yourself ring product where you can videotape anybody who comes up. Oh, to your right. Door. Uh-huh. So I have it uh-huh. myself, and I actually like you know have a friend who know if I didn't turn my alarm on or off or things like that. Okay. So you can get notifications. So I always say to the elder clients as well, if you're really worried about somebody knocking on your door and taking advantage of it, uh-huh. install a ring system and give your kid access to it because they can hear when somebody rang your doorbell and check sure. in. Hey, Dad, did you write a check right. to the guy who knocked <laughs> on your door? Well, another one is we both do a lot of work helping with clients. and I've done a lot of presenting on interference with testamentary intentions mm-hmm. of clients. And this is something that you often see in conjunction with elder abuse. And a lot of times you might have a client whose capacity is limited, or they're simply really ill and very vulnerable and worried about what happens to them if they don't cave into somebody's demands. So can you explain briefly what testamentary intent is and how interference with testamentary intent occurs? Yeah. Um, testamentary intent is um, is the wishes that you set forth um, either in a will or a trust um, as far as how you want your property distributed when you pass away. Um, and the way you can interfere with that um, is, and one of the examples that we had discussed here is say, for example, you have a client that has, um, a, you know, a million dollars in investments and you have four children and you want that to go equally four ways. So instead of um, setting up an investment account, um, for that million dollars, you have a separate, either separate investment account for each of the kids, or maybe you set it up in some form of, of annuity or life insurance policy or whatever that might look like. Um, and you appoint one of your children as your, as your financial power of attorney to handle your finances. Well, over time, what if you need to use those assets to pay for long-term care? As you mentioned earlier, that is a, a, a huge expense. That could be ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a month. So if there's a resource there to pay for that, then your power of attorney is going to use your resources to pay for that. Um, what if your financial power of attorney chooses to use um, the investment account or the um, annuity that doesn't won't go to him or her when you pass away, but that uses the um, assets from the other siblings and starts spending that down? Well, over a period of time, then those other assets will become diluted, and when the client passes away more of the money may go to the financial agent than goes to the rest of the kids. That isn't necessarily what the parent intended, but that's how the financial power of attorney acted when he or she was spending the assets. So in the end, that is going to be not really what mom or dad wanted um, and cause a disparity, cause a disparity that wasn't intended. So that's 
kind of an example of how you could, um, you know, interfere with some testamentary wishes that mom or dad may have had. And another thing we see is in that power of attorney that we talked about, Mm -hmm. one of the optional powers in most states is changing beneficiary designations. And so we sometimes see a sudden change in beneficiary designation on life insurance or failure to change mm-hmm. the beneficiary designation. Same thing with IRS. Right, right. So what about Medicare? That seems to be the annual nightmare of everyone mm-hmm. 65 and older. Mm-hmm. And I know mm-hmm. we're going to do a separate episode right. on that. So right. just kind of interested in at least a general comment on okay. Medicare for right, you. Right, right. Well, and I think for Medicare itself, um, every, everyone who turns age or uh, 65 is eligible for Medicare. And the biggest decision on that comes within three months of applying for Medicare, where a person has to decide either between original Medicare or a Medicare Advantage plan. And what's right for each individual person varies on their circumstances and their health and a variety of different factors. So that is a really important decision. Um, and in our office, we do Medicare consulting. So we work with people prior to applying for Medicare on what might be best for them. So we look at that. Um, there's pros and cons to each depending on your situation so that's important to evaluate Um, and then again I mentioned earlier um, in a different episode about reviewing your Part D plans on an annual basis that's during our open enrollment period which is from mid-October to early December and the formularies in Part D's change so even if your prescriptions don't change from year to year the um, coverage in your individual plan might change so your premiums could go up or your coverage could go down so it's really important to to review those on an annual basis. And last year in our firm, I believe we saved our clients over $87,000 in Medicare reviews last year. And I know that that's an area that you have had the expertise in that I was leaving to the rest of the world because (laughs) it is really complicated. Well, as my last question today, what are the other issues that tend to be more unique to the elderly, right? The client should be thinking about, mm-hmm. and I think it's healthcare. If it were one thing, I just think it's healthcare because as we age, and again, this gets back to where we started this conversation, um, aging. Um, as far as your healthcare issues, does not look different whether you're a client of more wealthy means or a client with less means. Because we all, as we age, we end up seeing the doctor more often. We, we have um, uh, more doctors. Sometimes we have a primary care doctor and then we have to add on all these specialists. So we're going to doctor appointments all the time. I've had clients in their retirement years move from their town that they grew up in and raised their family in. They'll move to Omaha because that's where all their doctors are. So that was the reason for their move. Um, and And so I think that um, in and of itself, as far as just a population and with aging, healthcare is the biggest thing that applies to everyone. Um, And I believe that we're going to do a different episode on at some point here in the future on the um, care planning aspect of that. So that will be something that we'll look forward to talking talking about. And we've been playing with that both of us for a few years and finding that to be one of our most popular services, Uh which is one of the reasons that we brought our firms together. And we are finding that to be, you know, both of us love helping people through life challenges and helping at that time by people, you know, in my practice and the same in yours, people have been part of my life. Some of them were clients of my father before me Uh and I've actually been named as agent for some. So having that at its service is just to me, a really meaningful thing. And I'm not sure why 
law firms haven't thought of it before because there is a huge disconnect. Right. Well, thanks, Rachel. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.